0: Support comes from AstraZeneca. The Beyond Pink campaign aims to empower metastatic breast cancer patients and their loved ones to learn more about their diagnosis and make informed decisions. Learn more at lifebeyondpink.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the overdiagnosis of breast cancer with Dr. Donald Lannon. Dr. Lannon is a professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is an associate professor in the Department of Surgery at Yale School of Medicine and the Assistant Director for Global Oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center.
1: Dawn, you know, we've heard a lot in the media and the press about this concept of Overdiagnosis, and for a lot of the women who are listening right now, they may be thinking, "What do you mean overdiagnosis?" I go for my mammogram, and the reason I go is to try to find cancer early. So, help us to understand this whole concept.
2: Well, what you're, what we're finding out is that a lot of uh, early cancers aren't really serious. They're uh, cancers that, when we talk about overdiagnosis, we don't mean that uh, somebody made a mistake and diagnosed something as cancer that wasn't cancer. It is a cancer, but it's a very slow-growing indolent cancer that would probably never cause the patient any problem the rest of her life if it weren't found. Now, we've known for at least the last five or six years that there is a degree of overdiagnosis, but we haven't really known which patients, you know, could be overdiagnosed or how they're overdiagnosed or how that whole thing works. It's sort of muddy. And the way we knew that it exists is if we look at uh, cancers over the last 30 years, since mammography screening became very widespread, the number of cancers went up tremendously, but mostly the number of small cancers went up. And if you look at the number of large cancers that are life-threatening and cause a problem, they went down a little, but they didn't go down very much. So uh, small cancers actually increased in incidence over three times as much as large cancers decreased. So that kind of let us know that there was some overdiagnosis going on.
1: But isn't that what screening was supposed to do? Isn't it that screening was supposed to find more small cancers before it got to be big cancers so that you could pick up your cancer really early when it was the most treatable?
2: Well, you're exactly right. That was the whole uh, philosophy or the, the rationale behind screening. But what we found is that they're not picking up the same cancers. And it's it's kind of interesting. You know, we have small cancers, say, under 2 centimeters. We have medium-sized cancers, maybe 2 to 5 centimeters, and then large cancers over 5 centimeters. And we always thought that, well, we've known for over 100 years that the size of the cancer correlates with the survival. So the small cancers have very good survival, the large cancers have poor survival, and the medium ones kind of in between. And so, until recently though, Over the last 100 years, for 90 of those years, we thought that breast cancer was one disease, that the small cancers turned into the medium cancers and the medium cancers turned into the large cancers. And if that were true, it would make sense that finding the cancers when they're small would prevent the cancers from becoming a problem when they get large. But what we're finding now is the whole concept is is wrong. The small cancers are Most of them will not become large, and the ones that are large don't come from the average small cancer. They come from a very rare subset of small cancers. So... uh you know the the premise is is false that the reason uh, you know large cancers are are bad and small cancers are good are not because we caught it earlier but because the large cancers are biologically different and they're they're much more dangerous where the small cancers are very slow growing and not dangerous.
1: So so it comes down to tumor biology. So tell us more about the different kind of biologic subtypes and and which kinds you tend to pick up on mammography that are overdiagnosed versus which types you really want to pick up on mammography because those are worse biologically?
2: So biology is really the holy grail of what we'd like to really understand. And uh, there's all different types of molecular studies that are coming along for breast cancer. It's very common now to use something like the Oncotype or the Mammaprint that are molecular studies. And then there's a lot of ones that uh, are not even that uh, commercialized yet that are being studied. But part of the problem is you don't have even the Oncotype and the print, you don't have large data sets that have uh, those results in them. So in in an article we did recently, we looked at something even simpler, just the tumor grade and the uh, re- receptor status, whether it had estrogen or progesterone receptors. And we found that just with those three very primitive uh, biological tests, we could categorize tumors as favorable, intermediate, or unfavorable. So what we found is that the favorable ones are the low grade, grade one, hormone receptor positive, so ER or PR positive cancers. And those were pretty favorable. The 10 year breast cancer specific survival is about 97 or 98% for those cancers. But then if you look at the unfavorable ones, they were the grade two or three receptor negative ones, or the grade three ones that didn't have both ER and PR, had one or the other. Those ones were pretty unfavorable and had much worse uh, survival. And uh, and then if you looked at the incidence, though, the, the cancers that are now very common, that are picked up very small on the mammogram, are the favorable ones. They're the, the low-grade hormone receptor positive ones, where the unfavorable ones you know, are, aren't picked up in the mammogram because they, they grow so quickly that they become large before you could find them on the mammogram. And, you know, once in a while there's an exception. I I saw a patient uh, recently that had a, a... cancer diagnosed because it became palpable, I think, in August, and she'd had a mammogram five months earlier in March that was read as normal. And so we were interested. We looked back at that mammogram, and in retrospect, on one view, we could see a small, uh, less than one centimeter nodule. But then in five months, that had grown into a three centimeter large cancer. And... Uh, the the reason that doesn't happen very often is because it was just coincidence. We had the mammogram in March and could see it then. If we'd gotten the mammogram in January, it wouldn't have shown up at all because it wouldn't have been there. If we'd gotten it in you know April or May, it would have already been much bigger and well on the way to the three centimeter uh, mass. So so to find a cancer that's fast growing like that, you have to hit the mammogram just right to the month to to see it when it's small. So most of the small cancers we see on the mammogram, if you look back, you know, a year or two before, you can usually see them then too. So they they grow just very slowly over over many years. And the 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 lead time is actually an important variable. And what the lead time is, is the time from when you can detect it on the mammogram to when it would become obvious clinically it would be a palpable mass that could be found without the mammogram and back in the 60s when mammography was being proposed as you know a good uh, solution to the breast cancer problem we felt that the lead time for most tumors was 3 to 4 years and uh, you know we knew that some tumors grew a little more quickly and some a little less quickly, but we thought, well, maybe a faster growing one the lead time would be one or two years, and a slow growing one it might be five or six years. But what we found recently is the lead time varies much more radically. There's a large group of fast-growing cancers where the lead time is less than a year, and these are typically ones that are called interval cancers. And then there's a very large group of very slow-growing cancers where the lead time is 10 to 20 years, and these are the ones that are uh, being picked up very frequently on mammography because uh, they're so slowly growing that if you don't find it one year, you'll see it the next year or the next year, and, and eventually it's going to be detected. But, but many of those grow so slowly that the, the lead time is 10 or 20 years before it would ever become big enough to feel. And, of course, it depends on the age of the woman, but uh, many, many women may not live 10 or 20 years. So for older women especially, uh, you know, the cancers that we're finding on the mammogram, many of them are totally irrelevant. I mean, they're they're not going to cause a patient a problem.
1: So so that brings up an interesting question and certainly one that has come up in in the media and and we've talked about it on this show in the past as well which is these screening guidelines they tend to be changed periodically and And most recently, people have started questioning when women should stop having mammograms. So to your point, which is with regards to lead time and uh, being older, is there a particular age at which patients should really just stop having mammograms?
2: Well, you know, I'm not going to uh, individually come up with guidelines. I think the guidelines need to be assessed by committees and groups and so forth and and uh, come to some consensus. But I, I'm not proposing that we stop doing mammograms. But I think it would make a lot of sense to stop doing them maybe by age 70 or so. You know, if we look at... Uh, the overdiagnosis it it is very age dependent and the older women are much more likely to be overdiagnosed than younger women and the the benefit of uh, early detection is much less in older women so by the time a woman's in her 70s you know the chances are much greater that even if the mammogram shows a cancer it's probably a cancer that wouldn't bother her so so my own personal thought is maybe groups that promulgate these guidelines should consider maybe stopping by age 70 instead of uh, like very frequently now we go into the 80s or, you know, late 80s even.
1: Yeah. And so I think, you know, a number of of guidelines now have suggested that, you know, you stop either, and and all of the guidelines are a little bit different. Some say by the age of 70, some say by the age of 75, and some say to use your magic crystal ball um, and stop having mammograms when you're within 10 years of passing away. Not that my crystal ball (laughs) tends to work that well, um, but maybe that's that's why. but with regards to the interval cancers, you know, some may argue that's a reason to do mammograms even more frequently, because y- especially for the fast-growing cancers, you want to pick them up. Uh, and and as you say, if it's really about making sure that the mammogram gets time just right and you don't know when just right is, should there be some women who yeah. get mammograms more frequently than once a year? Well,
2: that's definitely been considered. The uh, problem with that is all the mammograms have false positive results. So out of you know, 100 mammograms, something like five or ten are going to be called back for additional views, and probably a couple percent are going to need biopsies. And uh, so the more often you do it, you know, the more often you have these, these false positives and these unnecessary biopsies. And, of course, the the expense goes up tremendously. So I I think it's hard to uh, reach a happy medium. But but, uh, in general, the trend has been to do them less often. You know, a few years ago, most of the groups recommended doing them yearly. Now, actually, most of the groups recommend doing it every other year.
1: All right. Well, that certainly has uh, caused quite a lot of controversy in the public, but we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, and then we're going to come back and talk more about overdiagnosis with my guest, Dr. Don Lannan.
0: Support comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the US will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who will die from this disease Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to unnecessarily removing multiple cores from the prostate. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.
1: Welcome back. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar and my guest, Dr. Don Lannan. He's here with me tonight to talk about overdiagnosis for breast cancer. And this whole concept of overdiagnosis is really the idea that some cancers that are picked up on mammograms are so indolent, so slow-growing, that they really wouldn't cause you any trouble anyways, and that likely they would cause you no harm. On the other hand, there are some cancers that are rapidly growing where they show up in the interval between mammograms. And so, Dr. Lannon, one of the questions that people may have is, you know, is there a strategy whereby if you know a cancer is slow growing, you can simply watch it instead of having it treated. Or are these cancers such that they have the potential to cause both physiologic and psychologic harm such that women may just want to have them removed regardless?
2: Well, I think both are true. Certainly for prostate cancer, watchful waiting is becoming much more common and and, uh, very well accepted. The difference is surgery for prostate cancer has a lot of side effects and it's uh, not a very popular surgery. Where uh, the surgery for breast cancer, at least if you can do just a simple lumpectomy, is actually very easy. A lumpectomy is just an outpatient procedure that, uh, you know, is not generally deforming or have many side effects. So I don't think there's many women that would... uh, feel real strongly about avoiding a lumpectomy, if that's an option. Now, avoiding some of the other treatments like mastectomy or axillary node surgery or the post-operative uh, treatments like radiation therapy or chemotherapy, certainly uh, there's a big advantage in avoiding those. So my own feeling is that the cancers that we call overdiagnosed. diagnosed uh, Unless the per- person's very elderly, like in the 90s, or has a lot of comorbidities where even a lumpectomy is, is kind of a big deal, those patients would be ideal. And even now, we, we do watch many of those. But uh, for a healthier patient, I think most patients are going to feel better having a lumpectomy and knowing that it's out. But then uh, hopefully we can then avoid though the, the radiation or the axillary surgery or the other Things that frequently go along with it.
1: So, when you talk about overdiagnosis, just to be clear, you're not advocating that people do less mammograms simply because the mammograms may find these cancers and that they then may mandate surgery. But what you're really talking about is overtreatment and having additional therapies for a cancer that may be indolent?
2: That's right. I think they, they go hand in hand. And the uh, as I mentioned, I'm not advocating we don't do mammograms. You know, I think stopping mammograms by age 70 might Uh, somewhat decrease the rate of overdiagnosis in elderly women, but probably a better approach is to understand the biology of the cancer, and if we find a cancer, diagnose it, and then try to understand which ones we don't have to treat so aggressively.
1: Mm -hmm. Which brings us to this paper that you wrote in the New England Journal. Tell us more about that.
2: Well, that was a a very fun uh, paper. I it was really a, initially a response to a previous paper written by Dr. Gilbert Welsh, And he's the one that showed that the small breast cancers were increasing so much and the large breast cancers only going down a little bit. And uh, so my collaborator, Dr. Shi Wang, and I uh, were trying to look to see if we could find data to support that uh, paper that Dr. Welsh wrote, and also to understand the mechanism, how that would happen. And so that's how we came up with the classification of using the GRADE and the estrogen and progesterone receptor to divide patients into uh, favorable, intermediate, and unfavorable groups. And then Dr. Wang uh, did some very elegant uh, models where he looked at the lifespan expectancy of patients and the uh, chance that the cancer would would uh, you know, be overdiagnosed, and then from that could calculate the lead time. And it turns out if you know, you know, the life expectancy and either the lead time or the rate of overdiagnosis, you can calculate the, the third one. And so he built some very elegant models looking at uh, who is overdiagnosed and how that happens. And uh, you know, as I mentioned, we had known that there was some degree of overdiagnosis but we didn't know really who it was or what tumors. And it, now we can see pretty clearly that it's, it gets more and more common the older the patient is, and it's much more common with the favorable tumors than the unfavorable tumors. So for the first time we can kind of uh, narrow in on, on who is being overdiagnosed.
1: And so to be clear, when we say that they're being overdiagnosed, how exactly was that defined in the paper?
2: Uh, well, what we did is take Dr. Welch's finding that it was 22%. So 22% of all the breast cancers that we see nowadays we think are overdiagnosed. But that uh, 22%, I mean, that's a little uh, nebulous. You don't know still which ones. And what we found is we could, uh, you know, come up with that twenty-two percent figure by by making it higher in older patients and higher in ones with favorable tumors, and then much lower in younger patients and and patients with unfavorable tumors.
1: And so, so this this idea, because I mean, we know that in general, if you just look at the general population. Most people who get breast cancer get favorable tumors. I mean, they get uh, ERPR positive cancers are far more common than triple negative cancers.
2: Right, but it's not the grade is a very important difference. You know, the the uh, grade three ERP, positive, but PR negative cancers actually have a pretty poor prognosis. So so it's not just a question of the hormone receptors. It's really the, the grade one cancers that are the real slow growing ones, unless they happen to not have either any of the receptors, then they can be bad even at grade one. But uh, but that correlates better with the the uh, growth rate and, and the overdiagnosis than just the hormone receptors.
1: So, it seems to me that what we're really talking about is over treatment. Because if we still get mammograms in everybody, in order to really understand who has a favorable tumor and who doesn't, those patients would still need to have a biopsy and therefore be diagnosed. So, how do we really get around the problem of overdiagnosis, or is the term just a misnomer?
2: Well, as I mentioned, it doesn't overdiagnosis doesn't mean anybody did anything wrong. It just means that there are cancers that wouldn't have bothered the patient if they hadn't been diagnosed. And uh, you're right. I mean, I think the the ultimate key is going to be to better understand the biology. And I want to make clear that with our current uh, technology. We can't, on an individual level, say, Mrs. Smith, your cancer's overdiagnosed. That's what we'd like to be able to do, but we can't do that. What we can do is say, if we had a hundred patients like Mrs. Smith, you know, two thirds of them would be overdiagnosed. But we can't ever say that uh, you know an individual patient is overdiagnosed. So at this point, it's uh, you know we're really not to the point where we can say we don't want to treat somebody, but we can say we can individualize the treatments. And I think there's already uh, situations, particularly in women over 70, where we we know we can treat less aggressively with radiation. Uh, there's some guidelines that we may not need to do sentinel node biopsies in women over 70. And yet... Both radiation and sentinel node biopsy may have a, a role in some women over 70. But so by categorizing the patients into favorable and unfavorable biology, it may help us decide, you know, how to treat women over 70 without going, necessarily against guidelines and recommending no treatment at all.
1: Mm-hmm. What about um, the use of additional techniques? So you know here in Connecticut, there was a dense breast law passed, and this law has now been passed in many states all over the the nation, yeah. uh, which really helps women to understand who has dense breasts and who doesn't. And in the women who have dense breasts, the idea is that you may need additional screening to really look carefully in the breast and see if we can find cancers. With your research looking at overdiagnosis, does that fly in the face of this whole dense breasts and trying to find things that you can't even see on mammography?
2: Well. Probably. We really don't know. I think the, the question of uh, ultrasound screening for dense breasts is a fascinating one because it was based on no science whatsoever the The only thing we know about screening ultrasound is that occasionally you will find cancers that don't show up in a mammogram, but that's the only thing we know. We don't know you know some of our data actually suggests that ultrasound detected cancers are more likely to be overdiagnosed than even mammogram detected cancers. But we need much better uh, figures on that. but it's uh the big question that we don't know is, would the survival be just as good if we didn't do the ultrasound and we waited another year or two and then found the the cancer on a mammogram? Well, the odds are very good that the survival would be just as good. But, uh, you know, that's the real question that needs to be asked, and and nobody's asking it. Mm-hmm. But so the, the way this law got passed is absolutely fascinating, with no data whatsoever to suggest that it's worthwhile. The legislators, based on, you know, one or two patient uh, situations or case stories, assumed that early detection is always better. And so they passed a law, you know, encouraging screening ultrasound. And now uh, it's being passed at, at half of the states in the country without data. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's just, I think, interesting when in some ways we uh, try to be so rigorous about applying science to uh technology into uh, public policy and health policy, and yet uh, something like screening ultrasounds get passed based really on a myth. And the, the myth is really that over there that uh, early diagnosis is always better.
1: Hmm. I mean, it goes to other forms of imaging as well. I mean, in the past, um, almost every patient who had a mammogram and was diagnosed with even a small cancer would have an MRI, the idea behind that being that the MRI might show more cancers. But if those cancers didn't even show up on the mammogram, were those overdiagnosed too?
2: Uh they may be. Some of the, the uh, data we have suggests that MRI detected cancers are also maybe a little more likely to be overdiagnosed than than mammographic detected cancers. But uh, you know i think there are places where an mri is helpful but we we are actually much less likely now to just apply it routinely to every newly diagnosed breast cancer we're much more selective where we use it
1: right and in fact now there are national guidelines that suggest that you don't routinely use it in every newly diagnosed breast cancer patient and to your point Um, really start to be a little bit more selective and individualized in terms of uh, whom you order an MRI in. So after the publication of your study, which talked about um, overdiagnosis and kind of thinking about less favorable versus more favorable cancers and how the more favorable cancers tend to be overdiagnosed, particularly in elderly patients, have you noticed any change in practice
2: well, our study wasn't really to the point where we made any recommendations about changing practice. It was more uh, to understand really the mechanism of overdiagnosis and understand what's going on. And I think the the next steps are going to uh, need some clinical trials and some uh, much better measures of tumor biology to uh, really carry that to the next level. To saying, you know, for a patient with a uh, favorable cancer by X, Y, and Z criteria, you can uh, do less treatment, and and certainly those trials are uh, being designed, and and I'm quite hopeful that uh, we'll get some progress
0: there. Dr. Donald Lannon is a professor of surgery at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.